You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Soil science is one of our favourite topics to discuss on the Plants Grow Here podcast. We've talked about the basics including particle size, organic matter and soil hazards. But in this episode, my mentor Karen Smith interviews soil scientist and author Elisa Bryce. The questions are based on a book Elisa's recently released titled Grounded, How Soil Shapes the Games We Play, the Lives We Make, and the Graves We Lie In. The discussion gets off the beaten track and drops some knowledge you may not yet be familiar with. Does black soil really live up to the hype? How can we build soil on Mars? Does soil have a memory? Stick around to the end of this episode to have all of these questions answered and many more. So good morning, Elisa. How are you today? Thanks for joining us. I'm great, Karen. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. Well, so um, as a soil scientist uh, who's just written a book, that's um, a pretty significant task to take on. What made you decide to write a book not necessarily about soil as such. Well, I guess it is, but it's very different to any other book that I've read before on soil. So do you want to give us a little bit of information on on where that decision came from? Yes, it came from a few areas, actually. I am a soil scientist, so it's a topic that I particularly enjoy. But what I've noticed was that there seemed to be a distinct lack of books or literature about everything else soil does for us or all the other ways we use soil outside of gardening and agriculture. So what I wanted to do was make soil relatable and give people a way to just to engage with a topic that might not otherwise give a second thought. And that was by tying soil to like modern cultural things like Mars and crime and death and wine and health. And there was just two episodes where um, I was told that soil was too boring or it, had, it was basically not necessary to do a book like this, and I disagreed with that. So that's why I started to write this book. It took five years. It was a long project. Five years. Okay. Um, now, for the listeners, the book is called Grounded, How Soil Shapes the Games We Play, the Lives We Make, and the Graves We Lie In. But let me tell you, this book is really – a book that would appeal to many people, not just people who work with soil, which we tend to, as in horticulture, we tend to relate, you know, as a, as a growing medium, I, I, I guess is, is one way of saying it. But it's much more than that. The book, um, you know, is, is really would be of interest to, to anybody, I think, if you're interested in just how things work, you know, nature and, and that type of thing. So as a soil scientist, people can can take many paths, I expect, and hence the reason that your book um, covers so many different topics. And I'd never really given much thought to that. Now, I know in the book you say that if you're at a party and people ask you what you do and you tell them you're a soil scientist, they'll quickly walk away and probably think, oh, what am I going to talk about? So, um but as you've explained in the book, there's there's so many uh, different different directions that you can go as a soil scientist. So 
Let's look at, first of all, I, I must admit my, my favourite section of the book was on crime, and uh, but there's lots of other to- uh, topics there. For example, you know, rich black soil would be the undoing of a, of a high-end sports field or cricket pat- pitch. Did you want to elaborate a bit on that? Yes. One thing that irks me, and I know it shouldn't, but it does, is when people hold up a handful of rich black, well, when they go, look at this rich black soil, isn't it beautiful? Isn't it wonderful? And I think, yes, for very specifically, maybe some topsoil, but I've seen trees die when they've, you know, put into tree pits full of rich black soils, too salty, too, too many nutrients. But soil is fit for purpose. So it has this idea that the only good soil is a rich black soil, and that's just not true. Mm. If you were to take a peek under a high-end sports field, say the MCG or the the Sydney Cricket Ground, you're not going to see rich black soil. You're going to see what looks like beach sand because it is Mm. 90 to 95% sand. And those soils have been specifically designed to have really high drainage rates and to be able to recover really quickly so play can continue and to um, withstand all of the foot traffic. It's quite a specialised science and engineering. And the same for a cricket pitch. That's very particular clays that have been compacted to within an inch of their life and somehow groundskeepers convince grass to grow on these tricky mediums. So how can soil evidence nail a murderer? Well, soil is really great evidence because it's so sneaky. The particles are very tiny. It's really easy to catch them, pick some up on your clothes or your shoes without realising. And soil forensic scientists can, they only need a few grains, you know, 0.000 grams of soil to be able to match what's, say, if you've got soil on your shoe to an area where a crime has taken place. So to use an example, there's a case from the 1800s where a woman in Germany was murdered and they had their chief suspect who um, no one liked him, but that's not good enough to convict someone. And he said that he hadn't been in the field where this woman, Margaret, was on the day that she was murdered. But his shoes told a different story. And by looking at the different layers of soil that had formed on this man's shoes, they could track his um his path where he had walked and he had been in his house and he had been near an abandoned castle where they found a gun and he had also been in this particular field by matching the soil colour and minerals and texture. They could tell that he had been in that particular field and I believe he might have eventually been um, arrested based on that. Wow. Um, I, I particularly like that uh, section on forensic soil science and uh I think, you know, if you're if you love a crime drama, you you'll particularly <laughs> love love that section of the book. And um, I can see you as being the Miss Marple of the soil world and uh, solving all these problems. But that was really interesting, and and once again, an area that we don't really the general public would probably really not think much of or think about, and. Uh, you also touch on on wine, and I'm sure there's be a few listeners here that uh, that uh, enjoy the grapevine. So, does soil really affect the taste of wine or the types of wine that we drink? Yeah, that was the motivating question for that chapter, and it stemmed from me noticing wine labels 
had a tendency at the time that I was researching to refer to the type of soil the grapes were grown on. So there was ancient soil, there was volcanic soil, there was black clay soil. And I thought wine is very complicated and winemakers have a very challenging task. How much influence does the soil really have? And while writing this chapter, I visited vineyards, I spoke to wine tasters, I spoke to the Australian Wine uh, Research Institute. And you'll be happy to know that, yes, soil does influence the taste of wine, but we don't really know how or how much. There's this great big scientific gap of, um, of knowledge. But there are amazing wine tasters like Gwyn, who I interview, who, because of all her experience and her phenomenal sense of smell and taste, if you give her a wine, she can tell you roughly what sort of soil type it's grown on and the region it's grown in. So there's wow. definitely something happening, but neither she nor the scientists know what she's tasting to be able to do that. Yeah, so it's a whole new avenue to, uh, to research, isn't it? It's quite yes. fascinating, really. Terroir was the concept, the the taste of place is the, ah, the word that describes it. Um, okay. And I, I guess I also would read stories about wine tasters being fooled. Um, you know, mm-hmm. they would be served the same wine three times in a row and rate them differently. They couldn't tell that they'd had the same wine or there was a great experiment where a PhD student dyed white wine red. And gave it to, um, to wine tasters. Really, and couldn't tell either. So I was very suspicious. But after meeting Gwyn, like, yep, it, something's happening. We just don't know what yet. Yeah. Um, you also t- talk about um, how to make soil on Mars. That was um, something that quite surprised me. I have seen that movie with Matt Damon. I can't remember what it's called. The Martian. The Martian. That's it. You want to share your information on that? Yes. Uh, So researchers have been trying since about 2013 to see if we can grow crops on Mars. And we haven't actually brought soil back from Mars yet. So they're using simulant or analogs. So they've got some data from the rovers and then they're trying to mimic that soil. And it's really difficult. It's been nearly 10 years and crops are starting to grow. Um, But Basically, what they need to do is turn what is effectively regolith, Martian regolith, because could you say what Mars has is soil? I actually posed that question to the soil science uh, group in Australia, and there wasn't a complete consensus either. And part of the argument lies in the need for life, for microbes. Mm -hmm. If a soil doesn't have life, is it soil or is it just dust? Mm. Uh, Yes. And so what what the researchers need to do basically is turn this dust, add the soil ingredients. They need to add life, which is microbial life, which happens just by existing here on earth um, and plants and water. And Martian soil is actually really low in nutrients. So Mm. if we were to move to Mars and try and convert the soil like Matt Damon does in the movie and grow potatoes, then um, yeah, we'll need to, use a lot of fertilizer and that's not something that we'd be importing so Mm. we probably have to think about traditional fertilizer sources like the movie such as human excrement or maybe even humans themselves yeah um the the Uyghur Wamalink is the researcher I interviewed and he's absolutely brilliant I suggest looking him up and watching some of his videos he's very very funny wow so who eats soil well 
In Western culture, it's considered an eating disorder and only done by children, but in other parts of the world, it's completely normal. It's just a normal part of life, especially for pregnant women. Um, Soil is considered a remedy for morning sickness, which had I known about it when I was pregnant or (laughs) had I even thought about it, then yes, I probably would have started buying some eating clay. So we don't recommend that people go out and dig up the soil in the backyard and eat it when they're pregnant. No, not at all. Uh, you can buy eating clay online, but it's not – soil is really variable. And although eating clay um, is a common cultural practice, it's it's baked usually beforehand and that removes some of the pathogens, but soil can contain heavy metals. And if you don't test the particular batch you're eating, you don't know if, in, if it's in there. So I, I don't recommend anyone eat it. But um, interestingly, we don't actually know why – People eat soil. For a while they thought it was um, because of nutrient deficiencies, but that doesn't really stack up. Or um, was it from anemia? But does anemia cause soil eating or does soil eating cause anemia? So cultural is the strongest um, argument that we have at the moment. Mm. And there is evidence from every continent throughout time that humans have eaten soil. So it's just just something from a different culture. Mm. So... um you do have uh, a good section in there on health and uh, the beauty industry as well. So is clay medicinal or is it just another marketing gimmick? This requires a little bit of un- unpacking because clay is a really amazing substance. There are lots of different types of clays and clay minerals. So I, in researching the health and beauty chapters, naturally I had to go have a very expensive body mask to see how beautiful I would become afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) I left. All part of the research. (laughs) Naturally, yes. (laughs) And and I spoke to some people researching medicinal clays and it's used in um, combat medics. Combat medics use special uh, bandages impregnated with kaolin clay because it helps um, induce clotting. I actually found that section really interesting as well in the book. It was great. Yes, it's only a small section, but I, I will say it, Kaolin does, um, by using these bandages impregnated with Kaolin, because it makes the blood clot faster, it can mean the difference between life and death if there's been enough mm. bleeding. So it's it's really wonderful. And um, it's used throughout health and beauty and has been for centuries. I believe Cleopatra was quite partial to a mud mask. Mm. And on the skin it acts differently um, to if you ingest it. And one of my favourite parts well, the most interesting parts is the use of medicinal clays or skin clays to treat um, skin ulcers. So there's a great story in the book about a, a woman who was using it to treat uh, flesh-eating ulcers in on the Ivory Coast and using certain clays managed to heal them. So that's a really, really wonderful section. Yeah, very. I, I found that section really good too. Another... Uh, Another area of the book that would appeal to people from all walks of life as well. Yeah. So, um, how can how can you talk about being eco friendly when you're dead? What do you mean by that? Well, modern funerals are not exactly environmentally friendly. There's the coffins. Um, that are timber but they often have plastic veneers and then cremation is quite carbon intensive and we're at a situation now where there are a lot of people which means there are a lot of deaths and 
uh, ground burials are still generally the preferred option for cultures that allow it. Um, and we're running out of space, actually. Mm, cemeteries, yeah. they're very expensive. And cemetery, the lawn cemetery yeah. itself, if you think about it, it's grass management. Yes. You know, there's watering, whippersnippering, uh, there's weeding. Um, and in countries like Australia, it costs money. So the cost of burials is really high. And because of these issues, there are certain companies that are looking at how to do death in a more eco-friendly way. And that is something where you could take degraded land and turn it into a natural burial site. So think of wrapped in a shroud, a biodegradable shroud, no headstones, uh, um, and the land would be returned to whatever the natural vegetation is, most likely, say, a wildflower meadow. Um, unfortunately, people like the idea of becoming a tree, but that doesn't really work because trees are competitive and some will survive, some won't. Mm. But there are yeah, some really interesting ways. Uh, there's a mushroom suit that was re- got a million or more views on YouTube, but I question it a mushroom suit wow a mushroom suit yeah you dress in this suit mm. and then it's impregnated with fungi and then it somehow cleans you and you degrade and become part of the soil in a very eco-friendly way wow i wonder why we don't hear more of this mm, well i tried contacting them and they didn't respond the same with the human composting which has just been recently been legalized in the u.s um, which might get a bit more traction but it's a similar idea that you know, people want to return to the earth. We come from the earth, you know, it's a nice idea yeah. to return to the earth. I think it's the idea of a, a soil afterlife or, or a, a nutrient afterlife, and it's not necessarily a soul afterlife. Natural burials are considering that we come from the earth and for many people they still want to return to the earth. And while we're on earth, we use all these elements, you know, we, we take and take to eat and live and it's a way to return our elements back to the earth once we die. Yeah, well, I would imagine in many cultures around the world that's probably exactly what they do. Um, you know, the whole the whole westernised thing with the coffins and everything is really quite yeah. different to if you were, you know, in a, I don't know, a country like that's um, not so built up, you know what I mean? Mm, yes, and mm. I think some of it stems from there was the fear of death that bodies are unclean, and historically that, yes, there have been issues with that, but that was more stemmed from a lack of understanding of hygiene as necessarily that corpses are unclean. Um, but in countries like Hong Kong, there just isn't the space. It's not mm. an option. And in Greece, actually, it's quite common to reuse graves because the, the sheer, you know, small country, there isn't that much space and the sheer amount of people that have lived and died in Greece, yeah. that they are, are processes. And, you know, it, it's been going for thousands of years and it's working well. So I think if we just look mm. to other cultures for what they're doing, there are certainly options. And I, yeah. it seems like from my research, many people are very open to the idea. I think so too. Okay, you also talk about digging an escape tunnel and you've got tips on that. Uh, for may- maybe people <laughs> who are incarcerated shouldn't read this, but anyway. <laughs> well, I think yeah, if you are, you probably have to get through the, the concrete first. But yeah, yeah. Yes, that stemmed from I hope many people have probably seen or read The Great Escape and 
it was thinking about that. I was like, escape tunnels, yes, that's all very, you know, digging through the soil. How hard would it be? What would you need to know? And I do have to caution anyone at all should not just start digging tunnels for the fun of it because there are people who die every year from digging tunnels and then collapse on them. Collapse, yes, yes. Yes, so I, I do run through some do's and don'ts in the book, but if we talk about the Great Escape Tunnel, so they were on a type of soil which in soil science speak is a podosol, which basically means it had a, a, a very thin organic horizon at the top and then it was 10 metres of this bright yellow sand all the way down. So they had a lot of sand to, um, to dig through and that was really beneficial because it was easy to move but the problems was that the sand would collapse so they had to shore up the sides of the tunnels and I think there was an inventory ton- done after the tunnels were discovered and it was something like 6,000 boards had been taken from around the camp over the years to, to mm. shore up this tunnel so people could escape. And the other issue there was um, soil disposal. So if the ground that you're walking on is a dusty grey, which it was, and yeah. the soil that you have to get hide is bright yellow, there's a bit of a, a hiding problem, and that's yeah. why if you've seen the movie, they they hid it in these pouches in their legs, and then they pull a a piece of string, and it would, as they were walking around, the pouch would open and the soil would come out. Yeah. They'd have to kick it around and try and hide it. But it was something like sixty tons of clay that the soil dispersion committee. Um, managed to hide. So, wow. Yeah, tunnels are, are really interesting. I also look at some of the World War II, sorry, World War I um, tunnel, uh, tunnels and trenches on the Western Front in the war mm-hmm. chapter. And that's where they had another issue of the mud and the idea. There was a saying at the time that, or is it hell is not the ultimate suffering? Hell is mud, something along those lines. Mm. Mm. You must have had. Um- a great time researching all of this for this book. And I, I know you, you talk, I think, at the beginning of the book and say that, you know, you had enough to write twice as much in the book. So perhaps there will be a book two coming out at some stage, I think. Yes. I mean, I can tell you some of the chapters that I considered and even started and didn't make it were there was one on faith and spirituality, on art, on danger, on poetry, on wealth, on movies and wow. on the future. Yes, I spent months and it's more than 10,000 words trying to write a chapter on the future and I just couldn't do it. So I refer to it this at the end of the book saying I tried, I failed. So maybe mm-hmm. maybe one day in the future. Oh, well, at least you've got material to get a head start. Yeah. And and what about quicksand? Quicksand's always held a fascination for for people, I think, and um, certainly there's been plenty of movies where people have been stuck in quicksand and, you know, so it's sort of got this bit of fascination attached to it as well. Do you want to discuss that? Yes, quicksand. Uh, I, the reason I included it is because I think it's cool. <laughs> it's fun. And mm. I, the feedback I've had from readers is they also really like it. Yeah. And is it real? Yes, it is real. Um, it generally can be found in tidal areas. It's very tricky to spot. You can't just tell that there's quicksand from above. So people, you often find it after you start walking on it and your weight mobilizes the soil basically and it goes from being a solid to a liquid and that's because of the way that quicksand is constructed. Um, and I would like to assure everyone though that if you did sink – you wouldn't sink probably under your head, highly unlikely, because you're not as dense 
uh, you're lighter, you're less dense than quicksand. But people do come to an untimely de- demise, unfortunately, because quicksand is in tidal areas. So they sink, they get stuck, and then um, the tide comes in. So mm. as for escaping, uh, yeah. yeah, that's that's really hard. But the, yeah. <laughs> you need to be able to get – what happens is once your foot – so your foot goes into the quicksand, it displaces yeah. all the water and the, the, the sand – packs around your leg it basically sets like concrete and the only way mm. to get out is to get water back in around your leg very mm. hard yeah sounds a bit spooky um i can see from all of these topics though that you could certainly um write some interesting novels associated with all this science it's just fascinating yes i have i, I will admit um i've been toying with an idea of a, a mystery series where a forensics or scientist is the protagonist yeah that'd be yeah. great Oh, wouldn't it? And think oh. of all the great research I could do. Yeah, um, oh, look, it would be fascinating. <laughs> you could just keep going. There's, you know, there's just so many areas. Just just from what I've read in your book, it's, it got me thinking about there's so many different areas that you could delve into and come up with some, you know, really good um, stories. Well, put me on, on the list. I'll, um, I'm up for it. Um, and does soil have a memory? Yes, it's an interesting concept, isn't it? Mm. That the soil being, you know, and non what's the word? Uh, non-sentient. Yeah. But as we're going about living our lives, the soil records what's happening. Partly you might have thought of this through archaeologists, that yes, that we can find evidence of human existence, you know, buried in the soil, but the soil itself the minerals, the sand, the clay, it holds a chemical signature of what's been happening. So um, one example I will talk about is that uh, in the – it was coming up to the bicentenary in Sydney, there was this site where the Museum of Sydney currently stands and they had just found the footings for the old government house and there was a developer who wanted to build some office blocks there and he said well if there's no history there so it's not important why can't I just build my office blocks you know start the dozers so they brought in Roy Laurie who was a soil um, scientist and archaeologist soil archaeologist I guess we call him to decide if you know was had anything happened in the soil and to look at it it looked completely untouched but when he tested the chemistry it had a pH of nine and for comparison, the pH of soil in other areas, that other areas of Sydney, is four and a half. So horticulturalists who understand the pH scale, it's logarithmic. That's a huge difference. This this soil wasn't untouched. Something had happened here. Mm. And he put it, he working with other archaeologists and reading old papers and even looking at old art. What they realised was that. That area was um, the dumping ground. So imagine when the first government house was built, uh, fires where the people got heat and the fuel source and all of that makes ash. And over time, dumping the ash um, out onto the soil, it changed the pH. But if it only looked for physical evidence, say a pottery shard or something else, we wouldn't have found it. So there's this whole world of soil chemistry um, that – I think would hopefully is being studied and used more now um, in archaeology to understand our history. Mm. Fascinating. Well, you know, there's certainly, as I said, you've you've covered so many fabulous topics in the book and and what we've just talked about now is 
just a little teaser for everybody, but as I'm saying to the listeners, like soil is certainly an interesting, a lot more interesting than you give it credit for, I think. And um, your book is testament to that because, you know, there's just so many different directions and different topics that you've included in the book that just makes it really interesting stuff. So well done. Thank you. And do we think that there's going to be anything further come from this? Like I know you and I were talking before about possibly a documentary or something along those lines? Yes, that is what I'm hoping to do next. So I'm currently working out how that happens, the process, but there, I think Australia has such an interesting history and really great soil work that taking most of the chapters and then you know talking to the forensic soil scientists and watching them as they go through the clues and visiting Australia has some tunnels that we could go to too and you know talking talking to the cosmetic chemists and how they use clay to formulate their different products um yes mm. so if anyone knows how to do that or would like to do a documentary please contact me yeah yeah it's um certainly got a, a lot a lot to offer and uh I must admit I do like watching a lot of natural documentaries on on the telly, so I can't see why this couldn't be one, and I wish you all the very best with that because I think it would be fantastic. So is there anything else you'd like to add? Yes, um, hopefully just that readers enjoy it. I tried to make it lighthearted and entertaining to give people a, a fun, enjoyable introduction to soil if it's not something that they thought much about before, being that it's often presented in such a negative way mm-hmm. in the context of degradation and contamination, which are important. But, um, you know, imagine if I, the soil needs our attention and if the first introduction you get to a topic is really negative, it doesn't really attract necessarily Mm, great mm. interest um so hopefully i've I've done a decent job there and the only other thing is i am selling signed copies by my website on my website so if with christmas coming up if someone would like a signed copy with a special message um, i'm happy to write them out and post a copy of the book to you that's fantastic, and uh, it is available in most bookstores. But we'll put all the all that information um, in the podcast notes and your details as well. So, um, thanks very much, Elisa, on a job well done. I must admit, other books on soil I tend to just have as reference books that I might refer to now and then. But this uh, certainly held my attention, which is no easy feat. But <laughs> so well done. It was it's absolutely fantastic. I highly recommend the book. Thank you. You're welcome. Contrary to what Elisa says, I reckon soil science is cool. I'm definitely the type of person that talks to the soil scientist at the party. If you'd like to go into some more depth on the subjects discussed in this episode, make sure you do go and check out the links in the show notes to purchase Grounded. How soil shapes the games we play, the lives we make, and the graves we lie in. There's even an opportunity to grab a signed copy to give as a Christmas gift. Also in the show notes, you'll find a link to the new horticulture industry job board I've created at corepeople.com. There's a soil science category as well as over 60 plant-related categories and subcategories. While Hort People's growing, we're focusing on parks, gardens, and landscape maintenance roles. There are a bunch of great jobs, including plenty of team leader roles on the website, spread around Australia, especially in the capital cities. 
If you've been wanting to get started in your first gardening role or you're a seasoned pro looking for your next step, visit hawpeople.com now. It won't take you long.